0: Well, good morning. It's good to be here this morning with you. I hope you've enjoyed the song service this morning. I hope that you enjoy our study together this morning. Lately, I've really gotten into Old Testament history, and it's been been really interesting to see how some of these events play out that have repercussions in the New Testament. And I think it's really important that we get a good, firm understanding of Old Testament history in order to understand what's going on in the New Testament. Last time I talked, we talked about the kings of Judah, and we went through each of these kings, and we saw, you know, they might have been good kings, that they did some good things, they worshiped God, but they didn't tear down the idols that the people kept going back to. Every time, if you didn't read anything else about these kings, you read that they did not tear down the high places. And then we got down to King Ahaz. All these other kings were good kings until we get to Ahaz. And Ahaz was an evil, evil king, and, we, and I alluded to that, and we talked to a, just minorly about Ahaz. But this, this morning, I want to go into detail with Ahaz. I really want you to understand Ahaz and how evil Ahaz was. And then we're going to look at the transition from Ahaz to, to Hezekiah. There's a tremendous contrast between these two. Ahaz was evil, evil, evil. And then you get to Hezekiah, and there couldn't have been a more godly king. Hezekiah creates this atmosphere of worship and praise and devotion to God. And I want to see, how did he do that? What steps did King Hezekiah go through with Judah and the people of Judah and the priests of Judah that got him to that point, to where they were were willing to do that? But before we talk about Hezekiah, let's talk about Ahaz. Ahaz took over the kingdom from his father at age 20. He was 20 years old. So you think about what you were doing at, at 20 years old, Ahaz was running a kingdom, and not very successfully, and we pick up in 732 BC, and Ahaz is going to reign for 16 total years, and he's going to die at the age of 36, and I think that's partly because of the way that he ran uh, Judah. So this is our first introduction to Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did, not know, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnon and burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. And so... I mean, we could read this right here and you can understand how evil Ahaz is. He burned his kids in the fire. He was offering his kids as sacrifice uh, to the Baals. And because of all this, Israel invades Judah. Israel and Damascus invade uh, Judah from the north. So here's a a picture of that. Judah's right here in this red and Jerusalem is in Judah. Um, That's where all these kings, King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, that's where they're all reigning. And then there's the kingdom of Israel in the blue uh, to the north. And then there's kingdom of, the, of Aram Damascus, or what we call Damascus, um, in the northeast corner there. These two countries come down, and they invade Judah. And with that, when they invade Judah, they take away 250,000 people of Judah captive. And they take them back to their lands. And that's, that's about the population of Amarillo and Canyon, just being just gone they just take him back. And so um, Ahaz goes to the Assyrian king. And Assyria, we'll talk about them in a minute. They're this, this kingdom from the northeast, the far northeast, that's coming down to start to invade Israel and Damascus and, and Judah and Edom and all these other places. And Ahaz goes to the Assyrian king and asks them, ask them for help says, I know you hate Israel, I know you hate Damascus, can we partner together, can we ally together to try and destroy these people because they were being invaded. Judah was being invaded and, and Ahaz was really trying to do anything that he could to stop that. But they don't. They don't help them. And like I said, all these people from Judah are taken captive to the north, to Israel and to Damascus. Next thing that happens is the Philistine states, the, the, the Philistines and the kingdom of Edom, the Edomites, they come in and they invade Judah. And so you can see based on that, that diagram there that Judah is being taken captive and being attacked from all different positions. There's no escape for Judah. And can you imagine that feeling that you're stuck in the middle of this war, being attacked on all sides, no help, No one to call out to. No instruction from your king. God is not in the picture at this point because they don't want anything to do with God. And they don't know what to do. And so they've gone to the Assyrian king and they've asked them for help. What's happening? Why is this happening? The Bible tells us, for the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and been continually unfaithful to the Lord. He had gone to these other kings. That, that was a no-no. He was, he was not supposed to go and seek help from other kingdoms. That was explicitly told to, to the kings by God, and he rebelled from that. Moral, out, moral decline was, was the, the result of that. He sacrificed the people. He sacrificed um, his children just so he could serve these other gods and, because he didn't want to serve his God. He didn't want to serve the true God. And right now, like I talked about earlier, there's a lot going on as far as war in this territory. There's the kingdom of Assyria, I've highlighted in red. And Assyria was really a global superpower at this time. They were really doing this massive expansion um, as they were coming west and really southwest down towards Israel and Judah. And the capital of of Assyria was, was Nineveh. you probably heard of Nineveh. And part of this expansion, like I said went down through Judah and went down through Israel and Damascus. And this king of Assyria named Tiglath-Pilzer is starting this transition down to take over Israel and Judah. So we go back to our other map, and this Assyrian empire comes down and starts to attack again. I mean, they're being attacked on all sides, and then you add one more uh, conquest of the Assyrian army to try and take over your your kingdom and try and, and take over your territory and so Ahaz has another idea. He thinks, well, if I can't get him to ally with me, maybe I can just bribe him. And so that's what he did. That's what he does. He goes into the Lord's temple, and here's a, a replica. This is a, a mock-up that is on, uh, on display at the Met in New York, and this is, this is kind of what the temple of the Lord looked like in Jerusalem. And if you go back and read and do some study on this, there were 34 tons of gold that were brought in to help build this temple. 34 tons of gold is worth about $2 billion today. And so he takes this and he, and he goes in and he raids, the, he raids the temple. And he takes all this gold that he got from the temple and he gives it to this king of the Assyrian army trying to bribe him. And we can actually, it's actually really interesting. You can go and, and they found some archaeological finds. And this was an inscription from Tiglath-Pilzer talking about Ahaz of Judah. It says, From these I receive tribute. He goes and lists these other nations. But there's Ahaz of Judah, including, including gold, silver, iron, fine cloth, and many garments made from wool that was dyed in purple, something very expensive at that time, as well as many kinds of lavish gifts from many nations and from the kings that rule over them. So there's just some some extra biblical um, information that just proves that this happened. And so, it doesn't work. That bribe, all this money that Ahaz has taken out of the temple, all this gold, all these different gifts that he's trying to bribe the king of the Assyrian army with, it doesn't work. And so, the Assyrians continue to go after Ahaz, continue to go after Judah. We read in verses 22 and 23, now in the time of, this, of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. So it, it continues and he gets uh, more evil. This is that King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. So you remember back to our map, and Damascus was in that northeastern corner of our map. And so they had defeated the people of Judah. He had been de- uh, Ahaz has been, had been defeated, and so Ahaz has this bright idea of, well, you know, they defeated me, so I'm going to worship the gods that they worship so that maybe I can be strong like that. Maybe I can have, uh, maybe I can succeed too. And so does that help? And the last part of that verse says, but they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. So we see many, many times the same thing play out. Kings go after other nations' gods, and it doesn't work out. Time and time again, it never works out. But Ahaz is not done yet. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. And so you see this spiral of events that started with him just asking for help from the king of, Israel, uh, king of Assyria. And then it involved him going in and, and raiding the temple and taking the gold from the temple. Now he's not only trying to bribe, but he actually goes in and he tears down and, and breaks up these articles, these things that were, that were meant to worship God, meant to sacrifice animals to God, meant to communicate with God, and he, he tears them apart and breaks them down. And cuts them into pieces and builds altars out of them to these gods of Damascus. And you can see kind of the complete transformation of Ahaz here. This kid who took over at 20 now is 36 years old and is just evil, 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 serving, wants no no part of serving God. So Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem But they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And so they were ashamed of him too. They didn't want to bury him with the rest of these these good kings, these kings who served God. They didn't want anything to to do with him. And so we get this feeling of relief. There's a little bit of peace. Ahaz is dead. He's gone. Maybe we can get some peace from that. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. And And I wonder... In the eyes of, of the people of Judah, what are they thinking at this point? Because generally, whenever you have a son take over from his father in business or whatever, generally the same things continue to happen. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as we say. And so they're probably thinking the same thing is, well, just like, he, just like his father, that's how the son's going to run it. And they're probably worried at this point. But we don't see that with King Hezekiah. In fact, we see a fresh start. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, a fresh start. The example of King Hezekiah. We're going to see what a fresh start looks like. We're going to see examples of how you can turn this evil, idolatrous, self-serving nation into a kingdom that has passion for God, into a kingdom who loves God and wants to serve God. And so this morning, my purpose is to help you. If, if you're Erring from the faith, if you've fallen away, and if you need a fresh start, I want to help you do that. I want to show you the steps uh, and kind of what that looks like. And so we're going to look at Hezekiah. Hezekiah is in uh, second, chronicles, second Chronicles, chapters 29 through 31, three whole chapters dedicated in chronicles to him. You can read about him in, in uh, kings, second kings. And then Isaiah has a lot to say about him. And so in fact, there's more about King Hezekiah in the Bible than any other king except for King David. And so, and I, th- I think a lot of that has to do with how much he loved God and how much he served God. And so we're going to read about King Hezekiah this morning. Um, Hezekiah takes over at 25 years old. And um, like I said, we've seen his dad run the country. People are probably thinking things aren't going to change. Um, they've seen him destroy the temple. They've seen him, or Hezekiah has seen his dad destroy the temple, offer all this gold up to these other countries, build high places, build idols to these other places, and let's see what happens uh, with King Hezekiah. So this is our first glimpse into King Hezekiah. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square, and he said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers. And when you read that word sanctify, it means to clean "...and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken Him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turned their backs on Him." So sanctification is just another word for purification or for cleanliness. And if you keep reading through Second Chronicles chapter 29, we see how thorough they were when they cleaned the house, uh, when they cleaned the temple. They go through 15 different verses explaining how this was done and the, and the detailed work that, that went into doing that. And they clean for eight solid days to get this temple back up uh, into running condition. We pick up again in verse 18. Then they went to, the, to King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings with all its articles, the tables of the showbread with all its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified, and there, are, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. So eight days of cleaning, eight days of purification, and everything's back to its proper setting. The Lord can be worshiped again in the temple. And that's what they do. They worship God. They offer sacrifices to God. And the next 20 verses after verse 19 detail how they proceeded to go through all these thank offerings and these sin offerings and all these different animal sacrifices uh, to worship God, we find out later that there weren't enough priests because of all these different animals that are being offered. So there's, it's just an overwhelming amount of, of money going into this, into this thing. Verse 35, also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings, with the drink offerings for every burnt offering offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. And so you think about how amazing that was. Eight days is all this took. Hezekiah takes over day one. We clean the temple. And you can see in this how much these people desired for change, how the people of Judah desired change. They had been through this Evil King Ahaz and his reign for, for 16 years. They'd seen how far they had gone from God. And when change takes place, they're willing. They're ready. They're doing anything they can. They're, they're offering so many animals to be sacrificed to make it right with God. And so next, Hezekiah wants to celebrate the Passover. And you remember what the Passover was? That's just the memorial Um, of when God passed over the children of Israel and and got them out of Egypt. And so uh, Hezekiah wants to to celebrate that. Verse 5, So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they could come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. So I don't know what a long time is, but evidently it's been a long time so much that they don't even really understand what they're doing. They're, they're kind of making some guesswork out of it. But it's been years. And I, I think it's really under, important to understand Beersheba and Dan and where those are. So here our map is again. There's Jerusalem at the northern part of Judah. And Beersheba is down in the southern point, point of Judah. And Dan is all the way up at the very top of Israel. And so um, it's interesting. Hezekiah had jurisdiction over Judah. He didn't have jurisdiction over Israel. There's a separate king completely for Israel. And so King Hezekiah, though, whenever he sends these runners to proclaim this this Passover feast that they're going to celebrate, he sends them down to Bersheba, but he also sends them up to Dan, a land where who knows what's going to happen. They had just been attacked several years earlier by this Israel king, this king of Israel. There's 180 miles difference uh, between Beersheba and Dan, and so you imagine being a runner going to proclaim this this Passover, and you travel, I don't know, whatever, 100 miles from Jerusalem to Dan into a land that, that you had no business being in, and people might might try and kill you, and so but they, nevertheless, they celebrate this. And, and these runners go throughout Israel and they proclaim what's about to, ha- about to happen in Judah. Verse 12, also the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. And so God is with them. God wants this to happen. And God gives them singleness of heart is what it says here. It, it gives them obedience to King Hezekiah and what King Hezekiah is trying to accomplish here. And so they celebrate the Passover. And they, from chapter, verse 13 after this, all the way to verse 22, um, they celebrate the Passover and they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a, a celebration that lasted for seven days. And these people were so joyous, so dedicated, so devoted when they were doing this that we come to verse 23. It says, Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days, And they kept it another seven days with gladness. And so there's so much joy, so much happiness, so much spirit and devotion at this time, and, and there's so much excitement going on in Judah right now. It says, The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced, also the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the northern tribe, the sojourners, just foreigners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. So people are coming to Judah. They're seeing what's happening. They're excited to see this change happening. And there they go uh, just to witness what's going on. Verse 26, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And so you go back to to Solomon, and this is when the temple was built. This is when there was so much happiness, so much joy, because God now had a, a, a place on earth a, a, a dwelling place that was permanent. And there was so much celebration with that. And now we read that there hasn't been celebration like that since the, King of Sol- since the time of Solomon. And so in, now, as we move into chapter 31, uh, let's see what happens. Generally, whenever something new happens, there's excitement, things are happening, change is happening. What happens? You generally stop and you go back into your old habits. You generally revert back to your old self, your old ways, because it's just easy. Let's see if that happens. Now, when all this was finished, after all this celebration had happened for 14 total days, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images, and threw down the high places and all the altars from all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the kingdom of Israel, all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possessions. So that excitement doesn't burn out. That excitement continues, even more so, that now they're going out to where these high places were, these places where they would go to try and worship their gods, to be closer to their gods. And they destroyed them. They completely destroyed them. And it's it's odd to me, not only does King Hezekiah destroy these high places in Judah. But he goes to Benjamin and Ephraim and to Manasseh all the way up to Dan, and he's destroying these high places. He didn't let the borders of his kingdom define what he was going to to destroy. And so he goes all the way up there and has courage and determination uh, to destroy these these high places. So um, after this, after verse 1, we read on to see that Hezekiah is making sure that these people are giving generously. And so, in the third month, they began laying them in heaps, and they finished in the seventh month. In the seventh month, and so, when you look at this laying them in heaps, what that means is they were having mounds and mounds of animals to sacrifice. Thousands and thousands of animals went into to being sacrificed, and we're going to read later. You would really hate to be an animal at this time. I mean, you're being sacrificed if you're an animal living in Judah, and. Seven months after all of this celebra- all this celebrating, all this ge- uh, generous giving, we find that they're still continuing to desire God, continuing to desire to do right. They're giving so much that Hezekiah actually has to convene a meeting with all these priests, and they get together, and they're trying to figure out, what are we going to do with all these animals? We've got so many different animals here that we don't have enough priests, we don't have enough altars to sacrifice all these animals. And so there's so much going on, so many good things happening. And this is really a summary verse of King Hezekiah. Thus, Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart, so he prospered. He was fully committed to God fully committed to doing what was right, fully committed to serving God regardless of his past, regardless of who his dad was. And you can see such a turn in the country of Judah from from this terrible, pessimistic, we're being attacked and flanked from all different sides to we're going to worship God. We think about Ahaz. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he encouraged moral decline in Judah, and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. And we compare that to Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Such a contrast. Completely opposite people. Completely opposite in how they looked at God. And this verse down here is is really the difference between Ahaz and and Hezekiah. He He kept his commandments. He didn't depart from him. And so what would people say about you at this moment? Do you keep God's commandments? Do you follow God? Do you think about God and doing what's right and fully committed and devoted to him? Or do you desire a fresh start? And I think at some point in every single one of our lives, we've desired a fresh start. We want to start over. And so you may be thinking, how, how, do, how do I do that? What does that look like? I mean, generically, yeah, I'm, I'm, I want a fresh start. But, but when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, what does that look like? And so I think we can learn quite a few things from this story. Five different things I want to look at as we try and apply this. It begins with sanctification, We talked about sanctification, and that means to clean, or to cleanse and to purify. They needed to dedicate themselves back to God. The temple was dirty, the people were dirty, the priests were dirty, everything was dirty. And you look at at the word uh, kadesh, kadosh. That's the Hebrew word for to clean. And the exact opposite of kadosh is the Hebrew word shalal, contaminated. And so I think you can define what clean is by understanding what the opposite of it it is, and that is contaminated. And you think about dirty water and clean water, and if there's any bit of of dirt, any bit of contamination in water, it's dirty. And I think about um, whenever I went to Haiti a couple years ago, 2016, I went to Haiti, and the number one rule when you go to Haiti is don't drink the water. It's contaminated. And so when we get there, they, uh, they say, here's the one fountain that you can drink out of. It's filled up every morning with clean, purified water. Don't drink the water anywhere else. Make sure you don't drink the water anywhere else. And so I go, and day three, feeling good. Day four, I get sick as a dog. I had never been that sick in my life. And I only drank from that water fountain. I didn't drink from anywhere else. I did exactly what you told me. Next thing we know, every single one of the people that we were with were sick. Guess what? The water was contaminated. Just a little bit. Someone messed up and put the wrong water in the wrong place, and we all got sick. Why? The water was contaminated. Everyone was contaminated because of that. Same thing happened here. Everything was contaminated. Everything was dirty. Everything needed to be clean. Everything needed to be purified. And so that's what they do. Now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. That was Hezekiah's commandment to them. Get rid of it, purify it, clean it. And they do that. And I looked for a verse and found 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is written to Christians. So if any anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And so in your life, maybe you're contaminated. Maybe you've taken part in things that, that are not clean, and you need to sanctify yourself and purify yourself. So part of this sanctification includes this next step, and that's destroy all your idols. And, and we talked about that pretty in detail last, last sermon. But it's pretty easy to go back to your old ways, to go back to doing what you've always done going back to your old habits. And some of these high places and idols had been around for 500 years and even before the children of Israel got to inhabit this promised land. And so King Hezekiah sends instructions and they go out through all Israel, they go throughout Judah, and they destroy these high places, not just removing them, not just taking them down and putting them into storage for later, but utterly destroying them, knocking them down to where they can't rebuild them We looked at Romans 12, verse 9 last time. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what's good. We looked at what that word abhor means, and it means to detest utterly. You hate it. It makes you sick. And to have a horror of, you're scared of it. In your life, do you hate what's evil? Are you sick? Does your sin, does your evil that's in your life, does it make you sick? It should. Because you can't love God completely if you still have evil in your lives. We talked about all these different forms of communication that can be used for evil. Whether that's social media or texting or, or the music that we listen to. We talked about TV shows and, and movies. And since we talked about that, I mean, have you done anything with that? Have you looked at the things that you're allowing to come into your life and make sure that they're that they're clean that they're not contaminated. I encourage you to do that. We talked about how a computer can be used for evil, but it can be used for good things too, and and sometimes we need to destroy some of these things and get them out of our lives so that they can't contaminate us. That leads us on to point number three is that it requires sacrifice. Sometimes destroying your idols, destroying your high places, these things that you've allowed to invade your life take sacrifices. Maybe sometimes you'll have to give up some things that are hard, that's hard to give up friends, technology, money. Talked about not wanting to be an animal at this time. Hezekiah personally gave 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of money. That's over $2 million in today's market that, per, that he personally gave so that these people could, could worship God. Sometimes if you have to get rid of a TV, if you have to get rid of, of a computer or a phone or, or whatever it is, a, a subscription service to, to Hulu, whatever, sometimes that's what it takes. Sacrifice. If you need to pay several hundred dollars a year for, for computer filters... Maybe you need to make amends for for past sins. Maybe you've stolen something from somebody or been dishonest. And you have to to make that up. It takes money sometimes. Maybe you need to give up your, your Tuesday nights to go to Bible study, not go to the movies anymore. It takes sacrifice in life. Whatever the sacrifice it is, it was worth it to Hezekiah, and it'll be worth it for us in our lives too. Point number four. Your new way of life should be evident to others. People need to see you change. And if they don't see you change and a change in your life, then you're not doing it right. You haven't changed completely. We talked about the kings of Assyria. After Tilgath-Pilzer was starting to take over, his grandson took over, uh, Sennacherib. And he has conquered Israel at this point. He's conquered uh, Damascus, and he's making his way down into Judah. Judah. And he makes the statement in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 32. He says, has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars? And so this king of Assyria who's trying to to invade Judah and trying to get them to leave their gods, he's seen the change in Judah. He's seen how they've torn down their high places, how they've gotten rid of all their idols, how they have a different way of life, how they're serving God. This king who's Hundreds of miles away has seen this change. In our lives, people need to see the change. And when you commit to God and, and you desire a fresh start, people need to know about it. If people don't see change, you're not going about it correctly. Hezekiah, like we talked about, he sent runners out to Israel, all the way down to the southern borders of Judah to tell people: this is what we're doing now. We're going to celebrate the Passover. People in your life need to know that you're a Christian. You need to tell them, not be ashamed that you're a Christian. Sometimes you can't participate in things anymore. You need to tell them you can't participate in things anymore. And lastly, don't let your fire burn out. Generally, like we talked about, when when change happens and people are desiring things and things are happy and there's a lot going on, it's easy. But then when things, when people go away and, and the excitement's not there anymore, Fire start to burn out, and it's human nature for that to happen. We'll call this picture January first, and I don't know if that's one thing that you've decided to start doing on January first. But generally, what happens? They have passion, they have desire, they have a. We're gonna go to the gym every day. It's it's gonna be something I do. We'll call this March first. It's generally what happens. People don't have that desire. They don't have that passion anymore. They lose their fire. They lose their interest. They lose motivation. And so I encourage you, don't let your motivation for God, your motivation for a fresh start, your desire to serve God, don't let that burn out. With change, there's always going to be people that are against you, people that are naysayers, people that don't want you to change, people that don't want you to succeed. We talked about from these, these runners who were sent from Dan down to Beersheba, and they went out, and they were so happy, so excited about this message that they had to share, so excited about the Passover that they were about to celebrate. We didn't read this verse earlier. The countries or The couriers traveled from city to city in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the inhabitants laughed at them and mocked them. So when you desire this change, When you try and do what's right, when you are so excited and so devoted to doing what's right, there's going to be people sometimes in your life that that don't want any part of it, that are going to mock you and laugh at you. They won't be excited. They won't be encouraging to you. And that's why the church is so important. That's why it's so important to be here, to desire to be here, to be with these people here. Be at the assemblies, yeah, but to be in each other's lives and to enjoy being together. So every time the church is open, be here, stay after service, stay late, or get here early, stay late, have people over to your house, be in Bible studies, communicate with each other. That's what the church is for. Surround yourself with people who want you to change and are devoted to change in your life. So from here, we leave the story of King Hezekiah, and we go to Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet who actually was prophesying during the time of King Hezekiah. And I think they probably had a pretty close relationship together. But Isaiah, he speaks of a true fresh start. All this stuff with King Hezekiah, it was a a physical fresh start. They were were talking about altars and purifying the temple and things like that. But Hezekiah talks about this everlasting fresh start, this fresh start that's not physical. And Isaiah writes, "...and it will be in that day, behold, this is our God." We have waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. So the people of Judah waited. They wanted that. They desired that. They waited and waited and waited. 750 years later, this Messiah, this Jesus Christ, is resurrected. This person who they've been waiting on for this this permanent fresh start is finally here. And this fresh start... You didn't necessarily need to be from Judah. You didn't have to be a Jew to get this fresh start like these people here did. That, that fresh start was opened up to everyone. It didn't matter your race. It didn't matter what your background was. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he's just finished talking about the resurrection, the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And this is what he says concerning a fresh start. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so this fresh start that that we've been talking about, Christ was the perfect sacrifice. Christ was meant to come here to give us this fresh start. But for that fresh start to take place, you've got to desire change. You've got to desire to be a new creation. You can't go back to your old habits. You can't go back to your old ways. That you, that you participated in before you became a Christian. And so as we wrap up, a very last verse I want to read. I was trying to find something that really summarized all what we talked about but was directed at Christians. All this other stuff was, was directed at Old, Test, Old Testament history. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a fresh start, it's all about repentance. You have to repent. You have to change your life. And when you look at that word repentance, it means a a 180-degree turn. I was going this way. I'm doing a 180-degree pivot. Now I'm doing things like this. That's what repentance is. It's a change of life. In your life, maybe you're walking towards darkness. A fresh start involves repentance. You're turning around. Now you're going towards the light. You're no longer walking in darkness, but you're walking towards the light. This morning, you may need a fresh start. We're going to offer an invitation for that. One of the purposes of the church is to help every individual here that when you're walking in darkness, how to, how to do that pivot, how to do that repentance, how to turn around and do what's right. And so if the church can help you this morning with that, we would love to do that. We'd love to to get you on that track to repentance and and to doing what's right and staying in the light. We also want to see that through and make sure that you stay on that that path. This morning, if you need a fresh start through repentance or if you need to be baptized and, and truly start your fresh start with Christ, we'd love to do that for you. Please come while we stand and sing our song of invitation.